And welcome, you're listening to the Green Majority Radio Program here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or possibly on one of our wonderful live community radio syndicates all across the country, or on the podcast. We're going to be talking about a number of items today. Uh, today we have a, uh, a pre-record, actually, that uh, that I did a few weeks ago. If you follow our YouTube channel, you may have already seen it, um, but there's uh, uh, very different audiences, I find, between our, our YouTube channel and the live radio. So now for your radio listening pleasure, uh, just after the middle part of the program, we'll be listening to an interview with Yvonne Bambrick, who is a uh, Toronto, uh, uh, I would say, longtime cycling uh, advocate. Uh, she is also the uh, one of the four founding members of the uh, executive directive uh, executive director sort of council that originally started Cycle To or sorry uh, Bike To which later became Cycle To which is uh, a, a very large and, and well subscribed and uh, and has a, an impressive amount of influence I would say uh, cycling group here in the city of Toronto we're going to be hearing from her a little bit later about her book that just came out it is a, a, a cycling handbook going through everything somebody might want to know to be able to get them out of their car seat and onto their bikes. Uh, it was a great interview. We're going to play uh, a portion of that, say maybe a highlight reel from that interview after the middle part of the program. However, before we get ahead of ourselves, I'm currently sitting in the studio with our first guest, uh, who's Rich Penny, who's uh, here from the Toronto chapter of the Zeitgeist movement. Uh, here in the here in Toronto, I was uh, I went out to Z Day, which is a, a once a year uh, talk that local chapters all over the world uh, give this year. Um, was uh, very thankful for the opportunity from them to be able to talk to them a little bit about uh, some why uh, essentially I was making an argument for why climate change is the thing that we can rally around to not just deal with a social problem it's not about telling people don't worry about your issue your issue isn't important let's deal with climate change but my argument when I went there uh, which you can actually watch my talk uh, on the YouTube channel as well was essentially was that the climate was the thing that we can get enough capacity here together to take care of many of these problems uh, I won't go through the argument again it's on it's on YouTube but while I was there, uh, Rich is uh, from that group, and uh, he also had a talk, and I very much liked it. So I've actually asked Rich to come back into the studio, and we're going to talk a little bit about his talk, uh, which is uh, essentially titled Moral Agency and Corporations. Welcome to the Green Majority Radio Program, Rich. Hello, Darren. Thanks for having me. So we're going to uh, we're going to dig into some of these concepts, and I, I want to talk about some specifics and talk about some meta level stuff. I think this is a, a, a very interesting conversation because I think it's the sort of thing that's ten thousand feet enough that it it doesn't seem like practical information in the in the sense that you're not tell, giving people information that they can go, then go and take and and oh, okay now I know this I can now apply it to this thing. It's it's more in our day to day lives. It's the type of stuff that sort of just informs your your worldview, but at the same point without being aware of it i think that that people without being aware of these types of things without thinking about these types of things i think people can arrive at, at erroneous conclusions so i've asked you to come in and and talk about your talk and then we're gonna we're gonna break into how of some of the applied part of it but uh without any further ado would you would you kindly just sort of summarize the argument that you were making okay thank you very much uh so basically moral agency as a concept is the ability to make decisions for yourself and to be morally responsible for the decisions that you make now that requires that people be able to make decisions freely. However, um, there are several different factors of a free market economy that affect our ability to make decisions. There are two main ones that we should concern ourselves with. One is psychological influence. Um, so the market disposes us towards selfish behavior. In 1994, uh, several economists uh, studied um, a city in Switzerland, pardon me, pardon me, in Switzerland, and they asked whether people would be willing to have a nuclear waste dump in their community. 
50% of the survey respondents said yes. Now, that was a remarkably high number. So they went around asking a second question about three weeks later. Would you be willing to have a nuclear waste dump in your community if we paid you six weeks salary every year? Now, this time, only 25% of people said yes. And why did this happen? Because introducing the incentive changed the way people thought about the issue. So originally, the issue was framed in terms of, would I be willing to do something that is possibly, um, you know, laborious to me, that is possibly costing me something, if it serves my community? And at the time, nuclear was seen as a socially beneficial alternative to so fossil fuel. Um, so 50% of people said yes because they were thinking about it in terms of the community. When you add an incentive, it immediately puts people in the frame of mind where they're thinking about self-interest. And so adding that incentive suddenly made people change the issue to, is it worth my time? Is it worth the effort to have this nuclear waste dump? Am I personally prospering from its presence? And of course, yes, and the answer is no. So... Uh, the amount of people who were willing to do it dropped considerably. Uh, another uh, bit of information you might want to consider is um, Paul Piff. He did a, he's a psychologist through UC Irvine. He did a study where he played uh, rigged games of Monopoly with students, several hundred students across uh, the university campus. And what he did is he had two people play in a game, but one player had twice as much money and also could roll two dice instead of one. The result was that the rich players immediately became very aggressive, very antisocial. And when he, the, the most interesting part of the survey is that he asked them later, you know, uh, why, why is it that you won? What is it that contributed to your success at this game? And the rich players would automatically say, oh, well, I made savvy business decisions. I got all the right properties. I, you know, took control of the board. You know, completely ignoring the fact that they started out with twice as much cash and they literally had more opportunities to move around the board because they could roll two dice instead of one. So, and and I just want to intersect a foot, uh, put a fine point on that because I think this is this is this is a really interesting point was that these these players were aware of their. Uh, advantage. This was not. This was not sort of just to see. This wasn't just a psychological experiment in the sense of how would they feel about winning. This was. They knew they had a gigantic advantage, and they still did not attribute their success to this advantage. No, they knew. They were. They were informed ahead of time that they were uh, playing with more, more cash, and they even counted. There's even. A, there's a video. There's a TED talk where you can look it up and. Uh, they there's one part where they show you this the hidden camera camera footage of them in the room and one player says how many $500 bills do you have and you know the poor player says oh i only have one and the rich player goes i have five and yeah, so you know they were very much aware that uh, the game was tilted um and it influenced them in such a way that it made them bring out their antisocial behavior. So that's one important aspect to consider. Uh, the second factor that motivates us, that, it, that changes our motivations, I should say, is called structural coercion. So that's where you are unable to make what would generally be considered an ethical choice because the system has removed the ethical options for you. A good example of that would be there was a young woman who was working for a subway named Elizabeth Taft. Last, last year in Houston, um, she became very ill while at work and asked to go home. And when I say ill, I mean she was making multiple trips to the bathroom and uh, you know presumably having severe stomach problems. Her boss told her that she either stayed and completed her shift or she was fired. So eventually she passed out. They took her to the hospital. Um, and of course, you know, to follow through on the threat, because she passed out, she was fired. 
So a, a, a valid question to ask would be, why is the boss doing this? Because most people would look at that and say, well, you know, that's horrible behavior. What, what in the, would make someone in their right mind do something like that? And what makes somebody do something like that is structural pressure. So the boss, the, you know, the, the, the franchisee, the manager of the subway is herself accountable to corporate and corporate, you know, has policies that they will insist that she follow or she lo- she herself loses her position. So the agency, the agency, the ability to make your own choice has been taken away from the manager. And now everybody's just a cog in the machine. And as a result, the machine keeps chugging along, making all sorts of social problems with nobody... Nobody making any, nobody ever standing up and saying, okay, no, this has got to stop. I refuse to do this anymore because it costs them all their livelihoods. The only people who have the ability to stop it are the people at the top of the, of the ladder, and they don't want to stop it. So, I mean, um, excuse me. Uh, tell me if that. Uh, tell me if this sort of puts uh, puts this in the same sort of a, a situation, uh, where essentially we have. Uh, a, if I'm if I'm understanding what what you're talking about here, it sounds like we're. we're We've identified sort of a, a system where people are uh, able. It's nice to feel powerful, right? So when when you get you know authority to do something, uh, some people like it you know too much, and some people are less interested. But generally, when we when we feel like we have authority and, and power to do things, like the power to choose what movie to watch, uh, it's nice. We like we like that sort of authority. Um, and so you're sort sort of, but you're also at the same time, you know, you're doing it because you also don't want to get fired. If I do this action, I get to execute authority and I get to feel powerful and special and important. Um, and it comes with none of the responsibility because I'm just following orders. And so we're, we've sort of set up a, a system where people are encouraged to, to sort of use authority uh, in a way that they don't have to feel responsible for the consequences of the use of that authority. Is that, is that somewhat summarize what you're saying? I would say so, yes. Um, I mean, we can't, say for certain what, we can't say for certain what Elizabeth Taft's boss was feeling. We don't know. Um, but whether that applies to her specifically or not, I would say that that is something that is probably happening in the general case. I mean... I, you know, if you've worked enough jobs, you get a sense of what management is like. And a lot of them say, you know, I I can't tell you the number of times throughout my career that I've heard things like, well, look, you know, I don't agree with this, but that's just the way it is. And okay, fine. That's the way it is. You, You could say that because you're not the one who's hurt by that action. So let's let's bring it back to some applied because I can uh, you know I can I can see some people uh, hearing this and and going okay well you know okay crazy hippie what's your alternative um, but I think that I think the alternative you sort of outlined at the beginning which was that in until you introduce sort of until you even get into that sort of valuing. Um, uh, of stuff that people tr- sort of their default isn't to act selfishly necessarily that they that until you sort of introduce this concept this is not how people tend to behave in the in the same sense that this kind of like with your first example uh, if I asked Stefan uh, after the show today hey can you buy me lunch I, I forgot my wallet today there's a good chance he would say yes um, there's a good he's making a funny face there's <laughs> yes I would you bought yes. me lunch repeatedly on many occasions uh, however if I went to Stefan and said uh, hey can I borrow ten dollars um, and I'll pay you back in six months and when I pay you back I'll give you eleven dollars now we've entered an entirely different sort of conversation where he's he now thinks to himself is it worth it to be without ten dollars for six months to earn a dollar 
and even though it's it's technically for him a better deal it we the entire scope of the conversation has changed it, do you think that's a fair sort of illustration of your of what you're talking about that's fair and there that's a very fair illustration of what i'm talking about and there are solutions my presentation was meant to uh explain one of the aspects of free market economics and the way it affects us psychologically which is something that hasn't been studied very much until recently um but there are other presentations in the zeitgeist movement that talk about solutions to these problems i could go over them if you're interested um but uh yes that's a that's a very important thing that you just brought up there that um you've changed the way stefan thinks about the issue if you ask him for lunch you've asked him for something tangible that he can do to help you and most people want to help other people um but if you ask him for a lo- you know uh give me 10 dollars now i'll give you 11 dollars in 6 months time that it, it changes the way he thinks about it to is it worth to be to be without $10 for 6 months and so if you want socially conscious behavior you have to frame it in terms of appeals to socially conscious behavior you have to say to people all right we, you know we need to scale back on our emissions because if we don't the world is going to get much more polluted and if the world gets much more polluted people are going to suffer nobody wants people to suffer so that would be motivating them but if you say to them something like we need to scale back our our emissions because it'll be cheaper which is something that a lot of politicians appeal to you know if we um if we implement this technology it'll cut down on your electric bill what ends up happening is the people say okay yeah but then there's the whole hassle of implementing it in the first place so is it worth it and you know when if you want appeals to social change you have to motivate people with concern for other people so I think um let's uh let's get into some applied stuff. So uh, we sort of laid out some some issues that where where we we've created uh, systems that don't seem to create a, a more uh, a beneficial situation. We seem to be creating systems that incline people towards uh behavior that is not sort of generally helping everybody. Um so what's the applied? So someone says, "Okay, fine, I accept your argument. So what?" So what what do you want to do about it? Okay, well, those of us in the Zeitgeist movement support what is called a natural law resource-based economy. Now, the way that works is that we take an accounting of the resources that the planet has, and through that accounting, we develop a system where the essentials of life are available to everybody. So, we're talking about food, clean water, medicine, education, shelter, clothing, all and you know, and basic good production, all of those things. Now, according to um a lot of different estimates. So for instance, uh the United Nations uh Council on World Hunger has estimated that we're currently producing enough food for 10 billion people. So if we have enough food for 10 billion people and there are only 7 billion people on the planet, how does it make sense that 1 billion of those people are starving? If we have this excess of food, why not simply make food available to everyone? What we've found through research uh there's an interesting study by Dr. Evelyn Forget from the University of Manitoba. I know it's very she's very unfortunately named but um <laughs> but try and remember. But please forgive me if you're listening to this Dr. Forget. But um so uh 
she did a study um, looking at a, a town called Dauphin, Manitoba, who uh, that town through the 70s, from 1974 to, I believe, 1979, was offered a guaranteed income to all citizens above the age of 18, regardless of whether or not they were working. And the original test for this was, let's, let's take the free market philosophy of if you just, you know, give people money, they'll just become lazy, and let's see if that actually is true. Well, what they saw was that, to a large extent, the opposite was true. People became more socially invested, more committed to community projects, more willing to uh, engage. A lot of them wanted to work more. Um, there was a slight drop in employment, but that drop was accounted for primarily by students who stayed in college longer and by new mothers who stayed home with their babies. So none, none, of, none of those things are things that we want to suppress. I mean, it, there is all kinds of research that says that new mothers should be with their babies because that's the most healthy thing for both the mother and the child. So what we found is that um, through in Dauphin, Manitoba, um, mental health issues went down. A uh, number of heart attacks went down. Uh, crime went down. During the period when people were receiving the guaranteed income, social problems were severely diminished, and people's willingness to work remained, for the most part, constant. So what we, we've concluded, based on this and other research, uh, other similar research, I should say, that the best thing that we should do is simply take care of people. If you want to give people moral agency, you need to make it so that their survival is no longer dependent on conforming to some form of higher authority, because that authority could be abused. So let's uh, just for the last thing here, and we'll uh, we're gonna we've asked uh, Rich uh, to stick around for the rest of the program. So we're gonna we're gonna after this music break go to our interview with uh, Avon Bambrick, and then uh, and then uh, Rich is gonna stick around and, and join us uh, to talk about some of our news items this week. Uh, but as a sort of final piece here to sort of put a uh, to put a nice little bow on this for now. Um, Let's talk about the the applied when we're talking about things like uh, systems change, and I think you know that's that's language that gets used a lot in people who are trying to think about better ways to you know to organize society, and that doesn't mean throw out. Uh, but I think the reason uh, the common listener might be you know not give it its fair shake or not want to even get into these topics, they say, okay, well you're talking about some utopian paradise, and you know even if that I don't you know I don't I don't think that's realistic. I don't even necessarily agree that's better. And by the way, there's no way to get there. So all this entire conversation is a waste of time i i don't agree with that but i think that's some people's reaction but when we're talking about systems change uh, that doesn't necessarily when we're talking about systems change that doesn't necessarily mean the entire system needs to morph from one thing into one other thing what i think it means more aptly and i think if this is what sort of you're talking about is incrementalism where it, what it systems change means is that we can use the system to change things when we know how a system operates we can change the inputs to affect the output and so for instance like right now we've uh, you know the conclusion here was that because of systems like this we can end up with a system that seems to self-filter to reward people who are more inclined to sociopathic behavior to positions of authority where that behavior is rewarded like ceos of giant corporations um because their only incentive is maximize profit by any means necessary. That's their only legal requirement. It's maximize profit for shareholders. So if we did something like we don't have to completely change every global system to affect that, all we could do would be, for instance, to put full social and environmental costing into the price of goods. So you don't get to you're going to pay for all of your pollution. You're going to pay for all of those places where they maximize their profit by, you know, ev evading uh, things that hurt people. 
so you know keeping wages at 12 cents and having things produced in bangladesh uh polluting into the sky water oceans and land for free all of these things if there was a cost to all of those things and they maximized profit while still not maximizing it at the cost of these other things that are societal benefits then i wouldn't really have so much problem there they they would do their job best by doing things that also help the rest of us uh and i think that's that's really the 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 types of conversation about this that i think we can do is that we we should be envisioning a sort of better society but it doesn't mean that we need to flip everything on its head to get there it means that we should try and analyze things in the system that we have and how can we move it in that direction as as fast as possible in a way that benefits everybody and i and i think that's i i think that's an unfortunate caveat of when we start talking about these types of things um is that a lot of people go, well, th- th- that's, that's not something I, that's not a future I can see. So uh, this is a, a pointless conversation. Um, so sorry, I went on a little bit of a diatribe there, but I want to give you an opportunity to sort of respond to those critics that say, maybe say, okay, well, you know, this, this might sound good. I'm not really sure, but what's the point of even talking about it? Because we'll never get there. Oh, well, the first thing is I should point out that I used to be one of those critics. Uh, what changed my mind was understanding simply how much the world is producing. We are producing an abundance of goods, far more goods than we can use. And it is simply a matter of allocating those goods to the right people. Now, uh, in terms of social change, I mean, yes, a natural law of resource-based economy looks very different than the current economy we have, but no one is expecting that change to happen overnight. Um, so what you're proposing, uh, changing the financial incentives, and I just want to make sure I understand, but you want to build the, con- you want to build, um, so if it takes, you know, several tons of carbon into the air to ship a, a t-shirt from Bangladesh to here, you want to somehow work that into the price of the t-shirt. Uh, so is, is that correct? Uh, yeah, like it, it costing, you know, if we protect wages for, I'm just saying hypothetically, like that's a way that you could use a system that the existing system to get a better outcome would just be to account, okay, you can, you still get to maximize profit, but you don't get to do it by cheating with, through these ways, by by offering people wages that they can't live on, by by saving costs, by polluting into the common, uh, the common environment, stuff like that. Well, I, I mean, I'd, I'd have to look more at the specifics, but it sounds like an idea that would be worth, worth trying for the meantime. And um, so what you have is you have people like, for instance, the, one of the problems that you'll come up against with that is that a lot of people will say that capitalism can't really operate that way um, because now you've got like a $10 T-shirt that is now going to cost something like 45 or $50 depending on how much, um, you know, how much you um, you know how mu- I don't know how much you would uh, how much the price of a ton of carbon into the air would wor- would how that would change the price of the t-shirt. But yes, that would change the the nature of the economy. Um, that might be a good thing because, as you said, it might motivate people to make t-shirts here. Um, there will be a, certainly a lot of business backlash from that, but I think it's definitely worth trying in the interim. As you're very correct that social change has to happen incrementally, um, so. Any change that I believe is a step in the right direction um, that could minimize the impacts of things like climate change would certainly be worth a try. All right, so let's leave it there for now. We're going to go to a music break. We'll be back to hear uh, a short interview from Yvonne Bambrick about cycling advocacy, and then we'll uh, we'll come back and talk about some new, more news items. So you're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, live in Toronto on one of our syndicates or maybe on the uh, Internet. We're going to go to a music break. We'll be right back.
I've got a smile on my face and I've got four walls around me. I've got the sun in the sky, all the water surround me. Oh, you know. Yeah, I win now, sometimes I lose. I've been battered, but I never bruise. It's not so bad. And I say, wait, hey. Just an ordinary day And it's all your state of mind At the end of the day You just got to say it's alright She sings on the corner Why keeps her from dying Let them say what they want She won't stop trying And we are back. Uh, you're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 uh, uh, FM. We had uh, Rich Penny from the Toronto chapter of the Zeitgeist Movement here in the studio with us for the first part. He's sticking around uh, for the end of the show as well. Uh, but in the meantime, we're going to be hearing some clips, some highlights, if you will, from our interview with Yvonne Bambrick. Uh, Yvonne Bambrick is the uh, current... Uh, she, does, uh, uh, she is the current head of the... Uh, Forest Hill, I believe. Sorry, I'm just checking, getting my notes loaded up here. Apologies. Uh, yes, the Forest Hill BIA. Uh, sorry, yes, Forest Hill BIA and one of the original four executive team of uh, Bike TO, which is now Cycle TO. She also just came out with a book called The Urban Cycling Survival Guide. Uh, so we spoke to her a couple of weeks ago. If you're interested, you can watch the video that's uh, the full-length interview, if you'd like, on our YouTube channel. I will have a link in the show post as well. But we're going to just uh, hear some of the highlights from that interview. So the first clip that I played for her uh, that I was to ask her just to, to tell a bit about herself and just to, just to talk about what her new book is. 
My name is Yvonne Bambrick. Um, I work in cycling advocacy. I'm also the executive director of the Forest Hill Village BIA, Business Improvement Area. And I'm a photographer. I shoot events and headshots. So I just released the Urban Cycling Survival Guide, which is a book about how to ride a bike in a city, and it's aimed at uh, cities across North America. The rules are, are very clearly Canadian and U.S.-based. Um, but it's really, it's, the book was written for that whole bunch of people that are interested but nervous. They want to try cycling, they've seen their friends do it, they've seen the, you know, the streams of bikes going by and thinking, hey, maybe I should try that. So uh, it's, it's very practical, it's got a nice narrative quality, it's not a tedious rules book. It's, uh, it, it draws from my experience as someone who's been riding most of her life, and I dr have about 30 different contributors who are also giving great advice on various aspects of riding. Uh, so there's stuff in there for, you know, riding as we age, riding with children, riding with your dog, for example. It's silly, but people do it, and, it, you know, if you ever wanted to do it, here's how. Uh, but I've also got lots of information in there for drivers, right? There's four pages about what to remember when you're behind the wheel of a car for sharing the road with, with bikes. Uh, and the rules of the road, of course, and even just where to start. So what kind of a bike to get that will suit you best for your needs, how to buy a used bike, so the things to look for. Yeah, just, I basically tried to cover all of it. All right, and next that we asked her, I was asking her about uh, how much the f a fear of cars, of course, because we uh, here in Toronto we live in a, a city that's been, I would say, I would even go so far as say vehemently car friendly. Uh, we we just had, of course, uh, Mayor Ford here, who was uh, the icy reception to bike lanes to say the least. Um, so uh, this was sort of uh, just asking her a little bit about what how much she feels like cars and the, the car dominance of our, of our infrastructure is actually a factor uh, in keeping people off bikes in the city. Well, I think for the most part in North American cities that are still adapting to bikes being on the road, so putting in place bike lanes and, and separated cycle tracks, the fear piece uh, is very real. Uh, we just don't have safe spaces to ride, so we're sharing uh, the road with motor vehicles that haven't been all that well trained about how to share. So there's a lot of misunderstandings about how the road should work with all these different modes together. Uh, so that's one of the reasons I called it. It's the reason I called it the Urban Cycling Survival Guide, uh, to address the fact that it is uh, nervous-making for many, uh, but also survival implies, you know, getting through it anyway, right? Getting through something difficult despite the obstacle. So with this book, my goal is to really... Um, you know, build confidence through knowledge, right? So if you know what to expect and what what's expected of you, you're much more likely to be able to, you know, to take it on and, and to do well and, and to sort of diminish the fear factor before you head out there. All right. And then, uh, as I said, she was the, uh, uh, also among the many other things that she, she does, uh, is the, the executive director for the Forest Hill uh, Business Improvement Area. And one of the things that was coming up when we talk about uh, bike lanes in the cities was that a lot of business owners uh, on streets, so, so for instance, there's been a campaign to get bike lanes on, on one of the major streets, on Bloor Street uh, here in downtown Toronto. And one of the uh, ob camps, if you will, of, of objectors was businesses who say, well, if you take away my parking spaces, I'm going to lose business. So I, I asked her, you know, in her dealings with businesses if this is still how how businesses felt about bike lanes you know there's this old um understanding and i guess misperception about who customers are and that's because you wouldn't necessarily know that you know if i walked in without my bike attached to me you wouldn't know i was a quote-unquote cyclist so the 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 main perception is that you need car parking out the front of your shop or nearby in order to accommodate your customers 
Um, what we've found through a number of different studies uh, in Portland and Toronto is that people who are arriving on foot or by bike are actually spending more money than those arriving via motor vehicle, which is really something. Uh, so the notion of having one parking space dedicated to one motor vehicle, which could maybe have two people in it, but usually just one occupant, versus, say, uh, a bike corral, which can park eight bikes out the front. Um, you're allowing that many more customers to come in. Or, you know, heresy, we might remove on-street parking and reappropriate some of that transportation space for actual transportation instead of storage. So we're starting to understand based on great studies that are being done in our cities because there was a real gap in the data and now that we have that information and we're able to share it in a, in a comprehensive way with people and they think okay well right so you've just shown me the numbers okay I, I was wrong you know my customers do come on bike and on foot and maybe there's something to this whole bike infrastructure thing so um, you know I think we're starting to do more outreach to BIAs um, and starting to, to bust those myths a bit um, and, you know, slowly but surely, we're making headway, I think, on, on all of these fronts in cities across Canada and the U.S. So um, one of the other things I asked her was, uh, of course, that uh, um, uh, Toronto is, uh, has traditionally not been a much of a, a bike city. We are now starting to see over the last few years, we're starting to see the, the beginnings of the infancy of, of proper uh, bike infrastructure in this city. So I asked her if she, if she thought we were in the mid-transition to a bike city, and and how do we as, in Toronto compare to other cities around the world? Uh, well, you know, yes and no. Um, those so let's Copenhagen. We love to use it, but it's a great example because it's it's cited often because they were just as car-addled as Toronto is, forty. 45 years ago. But they made a choice. It was political will and public action. You know, there were too many deaths because of automobiles. And, you know, there was the oil crisis. And they, they made a choice to make their city bikeable. So they made choices to remove parking, to remove um, uh, car space, you know, to, to really shift the way the, the roadways that they had worked. They made dedicated separated cycle tracks. It's part of the curriculum in school. So it, it's taken time, but they've, you know, they've gotten there. So if they can do it, we can do it. If New York City can do it, we can do it. I think we are making progress. Um, and Toronto's been a bikeable city. I mean, it's flat. We've got a great place to start. Um, and we've, again, slowly but surely, it's, you know, we had the 2001 bike plan, which we've made progress on. But I think the timing now, we're about to have a new bike plan unleashed this summer um, with the new standards, right? So already 2001 is dated. But in 2001, the city of Toronto had a bike plan, which is something, right? We were leaders at the time. We, we sort of slowed down our progress, um, but we're really starting to pick up more momentum and even in the worst-case scenario political scene that we had, you know, the, the four years under Ford, we actually made progress when we could have been backtracking completely. So those projects that we did move forward on were already in line to happen, but they could have been stopped, right? So we are getting there. We've got physically separated cycle tracks. We've got more bike parking. We've got on-street bike corrals. We've got contraflow lanes. So, you know, it, it feels like it's taking forever, but in the grand scheme of you know, things happening in, you know, through red tape and through the bureaucracy and through public consultation. It takes time to build a city um, and to adapt it to the things that, that we need. So I think we're getting there. I'm feeling hopeful. <laughs>
All right. So, of course, if you're just tuning in, we're, we're uh, hearing from Yvonne Bambrick, who's a local Toronto uh, uh, longtime bike uh, advocate. Uh, I next asked her, uh, so we were just talking about Toronto there specifically. Uh, I asked her just sort of in general, regardless of, of where uh, anyone lives, uh, that if she had any advice that she could give to both uh, uh, bike riders and car drivers about how to share a road effectively uh, anywhere uh, on a city uh, infrastructure that's intentionally designed uh, to prefer cars. Let's all be a little kinder to each other, I think, would be a place to start. A little more patient. You know, we're all, we're all important people with important places to get to, and we have to work with what we've got. The demand is there for bike infrastructure. We've got more people riding. Thousands upon thousands of Torontonians are riding, uh, especially now that the weather's better. But even in the winter, I mean, I cycle year-round, and every year there's that many more people that, that continue to cycle throughout the year. Uh, so we all pay for the roads. We're in transition. The infrastructure is there, and the thing about bike lanes that I think many drivers don't necessarily connect, that there's a perception that bike lanes are for cyclists. However, drivers, bike lanes make things better for you too. They allow the roadway to work more predictably, right? They're just like a sidewalk gives space for pedestrians and then you know where to expect pedestrians. A bike lane does the same thing. So the roadway can work a bit more smoothly. Everybody's got their space, and once we you know, learn to work with this infrastructure, we can all hopefully uh, have a little more time for each other and, and take it easy. But in the interim, because we're all trying to share this space that wasn't necessarily made for us to share, uh, it's a little tricky. So I think having some patience with each other goes a long way. And then things for, for drivers to keep in mind, dooring is a huge issue on, our, uh, on any street, really. But in particular, you know, riding along Queen Street or College or Dundas or wherever it is, if drivers could remember to open their driver's side door with their right hand, it kind of forces you around to the left, and then you can shoulder check rather than just relying on your mirrors to see if somebody's coming. Same thing if you're a passenger in a car. If you're ever getting out of a car, expect that there's going to be a bike there and try not to open your door. Um, and same thing with getting back in. And then for, for cyclists, I, I definitely recommend just trying to ride predictably. But also own your space, right? Don't, don't just squeeze off to the right. And, you know, every time you squeeze further to the right, you're riding in sort of the dodgy part of the roadway where the bumps and debris is. So a meter away from the curb or, the, or a parked car is a great place to be riding. Uh, and, and just, yeah, own your space. If you need to take the lane, take the lane. Um, of course, you want to communicate your intentions along the way. Let other people know what you're doing. So if you're going to be making a lane change or turning, you want to use your signals, right, left, stop or slow. Um, and, and just... Uh, you know, use lights at night. <laughs> it's always a good thing. But I think if we all had a little more patience uh, and, and understanding and just gave each other a couple of seconds here and there to do what we need to do, I think we'd have a, a lot smoother ride. All right. And then the very last thing that I asked Yvonne uh, was uh, if she had advice for people in sort of smaller areas. So it's it's bike infrastructure and infrastructure in general uh, general is a big discussion in uh, uh, larger cities. But there's, as we, of course, know, there's tons of people who do not live uh, as much as many people do. There's tons of people who don't uh, live in big cities. So I asked her if she had any advice for people maybe in, in smaller regions or small areas uh, that, that maybe there isn't a lot of capital for big investments, even if they could convince people to do it. Um, so... What, what she recommended for people to go out and start this process, if maybe they're the first time that uh, any of the local uh, uh, municipal politicians had even uh, heard a request for bike infrastructure or, or, or even just bike advocacy in general. If you're new to riding, regardless of what city you're in, if you're engaging 
with cars in the roadway, I definitely recommend my book. I mean, there's a lot of great information in there, and that's why I spent two years working on it, because I wanted to give it to people. I wanted people to have access to this stuff. Um, but I, I'd say in, in less bike-friendly um, towns and cities where bikes are less common as well, um, definitely being well-lit at night is super important because there's often enough there's less sort of... Um, lighting um, from street lights and for example but lights are always important on your bike so being visible is even more important in places where cars are are less uh, likely to be expecting a bike um, what else in terms of you talked about how to get more infrastructure I mean connecting with your local counselor or your alderman and even the school board you know schools are a great place to to make bike friendly so if you can tap into your, your, your kid's school and talk with the, the trustees or, you know, whoever is around, um, start talking to your neighbors as well, you know, figure out who else is riding and who else might have an interest. But, you know, speak up and, uh, and ask if people want to work with you uh, to, to look at making your community more bike-friendly. I mean, it, it just starts with a conversation, usually. Um, and you need to be persistent as well. Not annoying, but persistent and clear in what you're asking. So if you're going to send an email to your local counselor, make it simple, short and sweet. I'm so-and-so. I live in your neighborhood at this address. Um, I'm concerned about uh, my safety and the safety of my children uh, while biking around the city. Can you meet with me to discuss uh, how we can improve bike safety in this part of the city, for example, as a, as a starting place, right? You want to make it clear that you're their constituent and that you want to talk with them about this issue. All right. And so I think some some good general uh, advice uh, regarding uh, biking. If you're interested in watching the interview or hearing the, the full version, we, we talk about two thirds of it there for for air. You can find that on our YouTube channel. Uh, you can subscribe to the mailing list is, a, is another good way to find out about this stuff. <clears throat> Uh, excuse me. And, uh, and then, of course, we'll, we'll have an, uh, a link to it in the show post today. So any information you're looking for, uh, we're also going to uh, put some links up to some of the stuff that Rich was talking about from the beginning of the program. So if you have any uh, in interest in learning more or watching some of this stuff or just getting links to, to whatever we're talking about, we're fairly good at uh, putting all our references uh, on the show post. So you can do that at greenmajority.ca, where you can also find out about our, our weekly, uh, 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 I want to say uh, what we can't say on the radio show, but we don't always it's not always that bad yeah. sometimes sometimes it's it's unplayable on the radio but regardless uh, stefan and i meet up once a week and do a bit of a bonus show as well you can also find out about that at greenmajority.ca uh so we're going to be back we have our, our final music break here and we'll be back to uh, uh run through some news items rich is stuck around kevin farm will be coming in uh don't go anywhere we'll be right back you're listening to the green majority
We're back. We're into the uh, the home stretch here. We're gonna do a uh, couple of things here. I want to talk about. Uh, there's been some recent updates on the Trans Pacific Partnership. Uh, I also have some news items here in case we get to it. If not, I'll post them anyway because you should definitely definitely read them. Uh, but a couple articles about the selective application of CRA audits, Canada Revenue uh, Agency audits, um, mysteriously appears to be almost entirely, if not in- entirely, uh, one sided of uh, of auditing uh, environmental groups and charities and other associated things. Um, people that are that are upset about things that the government appears to like seem to be the only people being audited. We'll talk about that a little bit as well. However, first, the very first thing I wanted to do was play the clip uh, from the White House Correspondents' Dinner in the U.S. So this is, uh, it's a short clip. It's a very portion of it. But uh, Obama, uh, under certain circumstances at certain times, has been known to have actually a fairly decent sense of humor. Um, this is not the first time he's he's been willing to be part of a, a fairly enter- genuinely entertaining skit. Um, uh, I'm actually, I apologize. I'm actually blanking on the comedian's name. He says it in the beginning of the, the part of the clip that I, that I cut off. Uh, but basically the gag, in case you didn't uh, see it, you can go find this on YouTube, uh, very easily. Um, but the gag was essentially was that he invited an anger translator. Obama uh, invited an anger translator. And so he was saying a whole bunch of things in his very tr- sort of, you know, banal uh, uh, presidential type of tone. Uh, and then the comedian would come in right after him, kind of lean over his shoulder and then say, you know, the, 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 the joke was that he was saying what he wished he could say. Uh, the non-politically correct version, if he could just sort of say how he really felt. So, but where we've cut it to, you can, you can go and watch the full clip. Where we've cut it to is the part where uh, the, the joke turns out to be that he starts talking about climate change and then uh, as you'll hear in the clip uh, he gets genuinely he or he you know for the sake of the joke gets very upset and the anger translator is like whoa, whoa, whoa I don't think you need me but I just wanted to give you some context so it's, it's very very short I just want to play this clip and then this relates uh, back to an earlier conversation so let's let's listen to that now but we do need to stay focused on some big challenges like climate change hey listen y'all if you haven't noticed California is bone dry. It looked like a trailer for the new Mad Max movie up in there. 
Y'all think that Bradley Cooper came here because he wants to talk to Chuck Todd? He needed a glass of water! Come on! The science is clear. The science is clear. Nine out of the ten hottest years ever came in the last decade. Now, I'm not a scientist, but I do know how to count to ten. Rising seas, more violent storms. You got mosquitoes, sweaty people on the train, stinking it up. It's just nasty. I mean, look at us what look at what's happening right now. Every serious scientist says we need to act. The Pentagon says it's a national security risk. Miami floods on a sunny day, and instead of doing anything about it, we've got elected officials throwing snowballs in the Senate. Okay, okay, Mr. It's a, okay, I, I think they got it, bro. I, it is crazy. <laughs> what about our kids? What kind of stupid, short-sighted, irresponsible bull? Whoa, 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 hey! What? Whoa. Okay, no, hey! What? All, all, all due respect, sir, you don't need an anger translator. You need cops. Right. <laughs> so it was a very it was a very good joke it was a very good skit that was key from key and peel uh thank you Stefan, for uh being my fact checker on on, on live radio here um so it was very funny and i, and I really enjoy that I, I like seeing elected politicians who are generally you know not terribly good at having a sense of humor i i really enjoy the white house correspondence dinner and, and i think there's been some some really humorous moments there um but what sort of there's so many things jumped out at me when I heard this when, when the first one was, why didn't you say this on day one? Um, and I think there's a number of reasons why, of course, we can easily say, well, he's at the end of his term. He doesn't worry. have to worry about reelection He's like, but we're not talking about partisan like maybe, you know, some people may or may not have liked the fact that he was making fun of uh, Senator Inhofe. I think it was the guy who threw the, uh, the snowball in the Senate. But the thing is, that is ridiculous. That is a ridiculous thing to do. And he didn't say like the, the joke there was that none of that was a joke. Joke. And, I, and I sort of didn't understand. And I mean, I do and I don't understand at the same time why it has to be a joke at a comedy event that's meant to be lighthearted at the end of his term that he, he can just say basic facts. It seems to be the only opportunity he gets to come out and just say basic facts. So we're, we're going to go around this a, a little bit just for uh, impressions. And then I want to we're going to relate this a little bit into the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership stuff. But uh, Rich, go ahead. Well, what I see uh, in response to your question is the fact that uh, Obama, as you said, he's at the end of his term. So much of American politics is rooted in denial of reality, and therein lies a major problem. For instance, the state of Texas has outlawed the use of the term climate change in any formal civic discussion. Same with Florida. You're not allowed to say sustainability in any report. You're not allowed to say climate change in any report because they have this idea that if you simply ignore the problem, it's going to go away. And Obama, I believe, having reached the end of his term, is no longer quite so subject to the political tides that would, you know, influence his decision making. To a large extent, he's probably, I mean, he probably wanted to fight climate change from the moment he took office. But he's probably thinking, okay, if I come on too strong, too extreme, the result will be that I'll alienate people and nothing will get done. So, you know, every decision he makes becomes very um, second-guessed. 
Let's um, let's come back as well. I know Stefan, uh, you uh, were uh, reading up some of the updates here on on uh, what had happened with the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The reason I wanted to talk about it today, and the reason I think it relates to what uh, Rich was just saying, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, was that um, it it I, uh, a news item, and the, and the reason I picked it to talk about it on the show today was that a news item came up that there was a, there was a fast track, so uh, uh, the, accelerating the process by which the Trans-Pacific Partnership would be accepted by the U.S. government. Um, and the, there was a big win and a lot of headlines saying, you know, grassroots win, the fast track has been stopped. And then with almost no fanfare, at least that I've seen, very quietly, like maybe less than 48 hours later, they were like, OK, yeah, actually, never mind. Uh, and that I didn't do. So uh, that I didn't read the most recent release because that was like late afternoon, I think. So, Stefan, so we almost had a win. Tell us what happened. Well, first of all, Obama did uh, what I'm sure most people thought was actually impossible, uh, which was that he did something that he got a majority of Republican senators to vote for. Uh, it perhaps I'd love to know. I'd love to see the number of things he's put out that that what he actually got was Republican support at all. Um, it'd be lovely if they, you know, if bipartisanship could come in any other form. Uh, but yeah, basically, what happened was he didn't get the de- no de- the first time through at one Democrat vote for it, uh, which was not enough to override the veto that was being thrown at it. Uh, and then uh, TK, they came back under but less than two days later with intense pressure on some of the democrats he got he swayed 12 democrat votes ended up with 13 uh which is enough to pass it uh now the question really though is even with it being it's still seeming like it's going to be a very big fight in the house um because again uh initially enough there's not nearly as much support in the house uh from republicans as there was in the senate uh and so it looks as if it you know it's you know, even with Obama working with the Republican head, John Boehner, the, the head of the Republican uh, in the House, you're still looking at this. Um, at it's going to be still a difficult vote whether or not they can get it passed. Uh, my question, like, what I'm, what I'm, what I've been, I was thinking about this yesterday. My, the whole thing is, I want to know why. I really want to know. Like again, what's interesting about this is so many people are responding to the TPP with so little information. No one has. No one who's talking about it has much information about it at all because of how secret it is. And that's part of the criticism, is it's so secretive. Uh, but I, there's just this weird question about um, what is it uh, that, like, what is it, in, what's in this bill? Why is, it, what is this, why is this the one bill where the White House is, is the one allied with the Republican set? When, when, what, like, it's, it, I, I'll be interested to see once the bill becomes public, because eventually it's going to have to when they pass it. Uh, you never know. Well, that's a good point. <laughs> um, you violated the law. Which law? I can't tell you. Um, but yeah, so that's the uh, so that's my question. Uh, but that's, that's what happened. What happened basically was that there was immense amount of pressure. They switched 12 votes. It passed. All right, so we've only got about four minutes left. I, w- I want to give them to, to Kevin for a comment. With with one with the slight addition of the, the somebody in the Young Turks uh, said something which really resonated with me, which was that anytime Mitch McConnell and Obama agree on something, you should not be happy that they're bipartisan. You should be terrified. Uh, but Kevin, I'll give you the last uh, four minutes here. Oh, sure. Hi, everyone. Um, uh, yeah, well, just to kind of maybe reference something that uh, uh, Rich just said. Uh, yeah, there's a there's a kind of a there, there, there's a public redaction of certain terms in the public discourse in the states, and that's going on here as well. At least to the effect that our our civil service, the scientists in our civil service, have been muzzled, and as a result of that, our journalists just don't report on climate change anymore. 
Um, I guess there's no other sources of information for Canadian media. Um, but also, we don't talk about the TPP. Neither our uh, elected politicians nor our journalists are talking about the TPP. <clears throat> it is wildly secretive. The only information we have about it at all is due to tw- uh, leaked documents of about 29 or so chapters of it, only 24 or 25, or sorry, only about five or six of which even purport to deal with trade. The rest is essentially a, a corporate takeover of uh, of uh, sovereignty and um you know really just well sovereignty in general it's a it's a deal between governments and corporations that is leaving out the concerns of citizens who really are um shall we say stakeholders in such an such a uh, an agreement so uh so yeah like this business with the fast track is fascinating because um it's the it's the constitutional duty of congress in the states to control um the public purse and to negotiate trade deals so it's remarkable that the president wants to um uh, sidestep them but in the meantime, it's also remarkable that he's managed to place his administration has managed to place a gag order on the Congress. They can only read they 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 can the Congress people can only read sections of it at a time. They can't take notes. They can't talk about it. And these are the people constitutionally empowered to negotiate trade deals for the state. So the level of blackout, the media, the the level the the level of redaction about this agreement in uh, in the public discourse, the level to which it is not covered in the media, is is astonishing, utterly astonishing, and that should be worrisome to just absolutely everybody. All right. Thank you for the final word. You've been listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. Check out greenmajority.ca for all your uh, information about the show. And other than that, have a good green week, folks. We'll see you all next week.